Kids, how many of you guys have fast-talking parents? How many of your parents talk quickly? Yeah? Yeah? Sometimes it's even hard to understand what they're saying, but think about what does it mean when your parents are talking and all of a sudden they slow right down? Maybe they look you right in the eye. Maybe they even get down on one knee and they speak slowly and clearly. What does that mean? Maybe it means you're in trouble, right? Definitely means you need to pay attention. It means that that they're saying something important. Um, Parents, you're you're watching a, a mystery movie and the main character picks up a document and the camera zooms in. What do you do? You've got to pay attention. You're going to be taking note of the, the names, the dates, what's on there. That's the director telling you, um, this is important. Pay attention. And we see the same thing in Scripture. As we're reading through Scripture, don't get me wrong, all Scripture is important, but there are times when the author slows down. They stretch things out. You get more detail, more information. When the Bible slows down and zooms in, it's telling us, this is important. Pay attention. This is significant. Uh, And we see that here this morning. Um, For instance, as you read through the book of Genesis, you you come to Noah. Um, Kids, who knows the sons of Noah? Noah had three sons. You know who their names are? Ham is one of them. What's another one? Shem, Ham, and... That's the tough one. Japheth. How many verses do you think are there on the family of Japheth as you go through Genesis. Do you know how many verses there are? Anyone want to guess? There's three. Three verses. That's what he gets. Here's the family of Japheth. Then we get to Ham. You know how many verses are on Ham? Fourteen. A little more. Not much. Do you know how many verses there are on the family of Shem? Well, there's 30 verses that tell us uh, about his great-grandchildren up to a guy named Abram who becomes named name changes to Abraham, and then there's nine chapters on Abraham, and then there's six chapters on his son Isaac, and then there's 23 chapters on his son and grandson Jacob and Joseph, and really the rest of the Bible is about that family of Shem. It's zooming in. It's telling us this is important. These are the ones we want to pay attention to. Uh, We see the same thing here this morning. Uh, On a smaller scale, we've been uh, in Exodus, and, and Israel has been in Exodus for 400 years. And then it slows down and it zooms in. Exodus 1 and 2 is God is raising up this rescuer, Moses. Slows down even more as we get into the nine plagues that are, that are spread over four chapters. And then the last plague, the death of the firstborn child, there are three chapters given to one plague. So this is significant. There's some repetition through here, um, but that shouldn't give us permission to just kind of skip over and and move on. Um, That tells us uh, we ought to pay attention. This is important. And so um, let's be reminded again, what's the significance of all this? Why all these plagues? Why this grand display? It's God introducing himself. He's answering this great question, who is the Lord? He's putting himself on display. This is who I am for the world to see. And I thought it was really cool this last week. I was reading through um, the the Bible in a Year plan. If you're on it, you would have seen this too. Um, We're looking at the Philistines in in 1 Samuel 4. This is like 350, 400 years later. And and Israel's fighting the Philistines and they bring the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant into the camp. And what do the Philistines say? They're a little confused. They don't have all the details. But they say, woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? See, they're a little confused. 
They say these are the gods who struck down Egypt with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They know this story. This story has spread through the world. The Philistines are scared of this God because they heard about Egypt. Looking this morning at Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses 29 to 51, and we're going to see the greatest plague that, that God brings on the Egyptians. If you don't have a Bible with you, I just invite you to slip up your hand and one of our ushers will grab one for you. Um, as always, when you have God's word open in your lap. Um, we're looking at chapter 12, nine plagues have already come and gone. If you remember back to the beginning of the book, um, when, when Pharaoh first began to realize that these people were a threat to him and they were uh, becoming dangerous as they grew so numerous, Kids, did anyone you remember, what is it that Pharaoh did to try to hurt the Israelites? What did he do to try to stop them from growing more numerous? Do you remember? What did he do? He said, throw all of the children into the river, right? Take all the, all the male children and throw them into the Nile River. And do you remember what the first thing is the Lord said? When he sent Moses to rescue his people, he sends, them, he sends Moses back to Egypt as this rescuer. And the first thing he was supposed to say to Pharaoh, back in chapter 4, verse 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And he did that. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. We saw that happen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This was the threat from the beginning. These nine plagues were all preliminary leading up to this, the Lord's original threat. If you don't let my son go, I will kill your son. So this is a direct attack on the people of Egypt themselves, Pharaoh specifically. And he's answering that question, who is the Lord? As he fulfills this last plague, we see first that he is the Lord who conquers. He's the Lord who conquers. Sorry, kids, I gave you a hard one to spell there. Let me read verses 29 to 36 for us. Moses writes, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, 
so that they let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. So God has warned of this plague in chapter 11. The first half of chapter 12, he told the Israelites, here's how you escape this plague, and now it's coming. It's happened. At midnight, every firstborn child died. Let's put ourselves in position of the Egyptians for a moment. Um, We've got the kids in with us. So um, if you're a firstborn kid, can you stand up? All right. Think about it. Midnight, these ones die. If your firstborn child's not here or grandchild, they die as well. Now, of course, you've seen these nine plagues come and go. You've seen God reliably threaten and fulfill. You've heard this threat is coming, but you don't have a clock, and so you just wait in the dark. Kids have fallen asleep. You wait. You keep checking in on them hesitantly, hoping not to find the worst. And then after what seems like an eternity, um, you hear a scream from the house across the street, and you run to check on your child and sure enough he's gone he's dead you can imagine this great cry through all of Egypt Um, the Hebrew word there is is onomatopoeia it it sounds like what it means the word is tzak and you can hear this this crying out and it's a word that's shown up a few times through this story Exodus 2 verse 23 we see the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and it says they cried out for help to God. In 5, verse 15, it says that the foreman of the people of Israel came to Pharaoh and cried out to Pharaoh, why do you treat us like this? And the Lord is saying, you made my people cry out, I'm going to make your people cry out. Remember the the creation imagery that's been flowing through all of this. Three sets of plagues attacking these three realms of creation, water, earth, and sky, uh, each starting out early in the morning. And what's the the pinnacle of God's creation? What is it on on day six? The high point of all of it is the the creation of mankind. So this last plague is directly attacking mankind. And not early in the morning, but the middle of the night, God the Creator is undoing His creation as He pours out His wrath on Egypt. Not a house. It would be better in their society, not, not an extended family without someone dead. Now, outside of the Bible, there's not a whole lot of evidence for the Exodus. Not surprising. You think about it. Um, the Egyptians aren't writing this down. They're not telling this story to their grandkids. They're tucking this one away. This is embarrassing. This is that that family secret skeleton in the closet that we don't talk about. But there's there's this great little tidbit in history. According to the Bible's timeline, um, the Exodus would have happened uh, in 1446 B.C. Um, So 1 Kings 6.1 tells us that the, uh, the, the Temple of Solomon was built 480 years after the Exodus. And we get a pretty good idea of when the Temple of Solomon is built, so we can work backwards from there. So 1446, the pharaoh was a guy named Amenhotep II. Uh, So that's who would have been going through these plagues and hardening his heart. And and the next pharaoh to rule in line was Thutmose IV. And Thutmose IV um, did something interesting. When he became king, 
he put this big stone up between the legs of the Sphinx. The Sphinx picture, there it is. This big stone, it's called the dream steel of Tutmos IV. And, uh, and what it tells is this story of how the Sphinx appeared to him in a dream and told him that he would be Pharaoh. And it's interesting. Why? Why make this special case? Why try to prove to everyone around you, it's right, it's, I should be Pharaoh, I'm supposed to be Pharaoh. The, the Sphinx told me, um, if he was the firstborn son, that would have been assumed that was his right. But if his older brother had perhaps died, maybe at the hands of another god, um, this would make a reasonable sense that he would be trying to argue for his right to the throne. So some speculation there, but just an interesting tidbit from history um, I thought we'd throw in. But from this point out, as we follow the story, what we see is Pharaoh is absolutely humiliated. Pharaoh is humiliated. After the plagues that preceded this, he told Moses, get out of my presence. I never want to see you again. If I see you again, I'm going to kill you. And now what does he do? He has to send for Moses. In the middle of the night, Moses, okay, come back. Come in. I know I said I never wanted to see you again, but I want to see you again. And then he says, go out from among my people. You'll notice what's missing here. Every other time, Pharaoh has been very clear. I will send you out. I will let you go. I will release you. He's calling the shots. He's in charge. You might go, but it's me letting you go. And of course, he never did follow through on those. And we'll see his heart will harden once yet again. But even in this temporary position, the I is gone now. Just go. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Go serve the Lord according to your commands, not not mine. And he says, you and the people of Israel. This is the first time that Pharaoh calls them this. The first time he admits that they are the people of Israel. That they have their own identity. They're not just his slaves. They're a nation. And he tells them, go serve the Lord. That word serve has kind of been tracking all the way through Avad. It had the, the, the idea of ownership, but also of worship. Pharaoh has resisted using this word. He told them in the earlier plagues, go, go sacrifice to the Lord, but you're my servants. You're my people. Now he says, go serve the Lord. Go be His. Go worship Him rather than me. And not just the people. Again, Pharaoh had been holding back. Maybe go, but leave your children. Go, but don't go too far. Go, but leave the livestock. Now he says, go. Take the flocks, the herds. Take it all. Just leave. Be gone. The fulfillment from verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord had said, when he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. He will chase you out. And that's exactly what's happening. And this last little tidbit here is possibly the most significant yet he says bless me also pharaoh broken hurting desperate now asks moses for his blessing to ask for a blessing was to completely subjugate oneself it was to, the, the greater always blesses the lesser When Jacob first came into Egypt, Jacob blessed the Pharaoh at that time. And all of Egypt flourished and was blessed because of Israel's presence there. Now we have Pharaoh begging Moses for his blessing. And all of Egypt is cursed because of the way they've treated Israel. And it's not just Pharaoh. Verse 33. 
the Egyptians, all the people, were urgent with the people saying, send them out of this land in haste. Get out of here. Um, We'll all die if you stick around. We can't survive this. So just as the Lord said they would, um, the Egyptians gave their gold and silver to Israel and the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Israel didn't sneak out the back door. right? They didn't didn't slink out quietly, um, hiding tail between their legs. No, they walked proudly out the front door with arms filled uh, of gold and silver. This was a great victory. This is the kind of victory that God gives over His enemies. This is the kind of victory that God gives to His people. Listen, it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. It's about His rescuing us. He's the God who conquers. He's the God who rescues. In our pride, we are so bent toward trying to earn things. We are so desperate to try to prove ourselves, to impress God, to show that we're worthy. But this is the God who reaches out for those who are not impressive. For those who are not worthy, those who are not able to save themselves, and He saves, He does the saving. God is the God who conquers sin on our behalf. And ultimately, it's not by killing the firstborn of His enemies. It's by sacrificing His own firstborn to make His enemies His children. So if you're a believer this morning, we've got to hold on to this. We've got to see this and understand it. Your enemy, sin, is conquered. It's dealt with. We get confused. We talk about guilt as if it's a feeling. I feel guilty. It's not. It's a a legal position and you're not guilty before God. Your sin, absolutely, not, not metaphorically, not potentially, actually paid for on the cross of Christ. And he could scream out, it is finished. Actually paid. Nothing left. That's why Paul can say in a very real sense, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none left. Jesus, as God, sorry, just as God, rescued Israel out from Egypt, has also rescued sinners out from under sin. But not only does He conquer the penalty of sin for us, He also conquers the power of sin in us. See the difference there? It's not just the, it's not just the penalty of sin that hung over us, it's the power of sin that, that dwelt in us. Now this takes a lifetime to work out. But you have to understand, you used to be ruled by sin. It used to control you. You were like Israel, living in a foreign land as a slave to sin. We, we talk about this thing called free will, and we don't have it. We were slaves to sin. Now, you had freedom to choose any kind of sin you would like, but your heart was a slave to sin. Those are the things that you desire. And God also conquers the power of sin in us. He's freed us from that power that once controlled us, that once ruled over us. Look at Romans 6. Verse 17, thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to righteousness. So you used to be a slave to sin. We have to admit that. That anger ruled you. That lust, selfishness, that bad attitude, that bitterness and unforgiveness, the the arrogance and pride, it was your master. It did control you. Now you're still guilty of it. It was your sinful heart that ruled you. But you were powerless under its pressure. But not anymore, church. Not anymore. You have a new master now. And notice that Yahweh doesn't just set the people free from Egypt and turn them off into the wilderness. They go from one slavery to another. They go from slaves to Egypt to becoming slaves of God. Slaves of Yahweh. We're still slaves. But now we're slaves to righteousness. Slaves to Him. He set us free from the power of sin and He's graciously working in us to to teach us how to live under His law of love. Do we believe that? Do you believe that sin no longer rules you? As you do battle with sin day in and day out, do you have that in the back of your mind? The power of this has been crushed. When I sin, it's not because my sin rules me. When we sin, we sin by choice. 1 Corinthians says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, He will also provide a way of escape that we can bear up under it. There's always an option. Now, we'll never live that perfectly in this life. We never reach that place. But as slaves to righteousness in Christ, we we will see progress. We will see growth in our life over time, growth in holiness. And one day, one glorious day, we will be totally and completely freed from the power of sin. In heaven, not only will there be no sin, there'll be no desire to sin because we'll see Him. We'll be so enamored by Him. We won't won't wonder anymore if God is good enough. We won't be tempted anymore by these these lies that sin offers because we'll see Him in all of His glory. He is the Lord who conquers our enemies fully and completely. And and knowing that, we ought to do as, as 1 Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, so as those who are, who are traveling through, because we've been rescued out from the power of this world, and yet we still live here as strangers, as citizens of heaven, living abroad in this world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Fight hard against those old habits, against the, the passions of the flesh, because they're warring against your soul. That's your enemy who's trying to destroy you, your enemy that God has conquered. We need to grasp this. It's so hard to say no to our own hearts. We we look at something and say, yeah, but I want it, and we fail to recognize that want is the very problem. That's the deception of our own hearts. That's the enemy set to destroy us. I love that um, song we sang. There's, uh, oh, I lost it now. It talks about 
Um, we trust you. Jesus, we trust you. His ways are higher than our ways. That's the battle right there. That's the, that's the victory that Christ has won, that, that we can trust him, knowing his ways are higher than our ways. His commands are greater than our desires for sin. And we have to know the Lord who's conquered our sin and then see that he is the Lord who blesses. He's the Lord who blesses. Look, look at verses 37 to 41 with me here. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, and a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So Israel has been in Egypt 430 years. That's a long time. Put that into our own context. 475 years ago, Jacques Cartier discovered Canada. It was a new thing. Uh, 430 years ago, Shakespeare was writing plays. That's a long time ago. And, and so Israel, living in Egypt, they knew that, that Egypt wasn't their homeland. They knew that they didn't belong there. Um, but their roots go back in Egypt much, much further than your roots go back in Canada. And yet as far back uh, as into Genesis 15, looking at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they'll be servants there. Okay, that happened. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Wow, God even gives a time frame. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The detail there, it's amazing. God's telling Abraham, this is what's going to happen. It'll be a, about a hundred years until they go into Egypt, and, and then God brings it about, just as He said. Here they are, as promised. God's bringing judgment on Egypt, and they are coming out with great possessions as a mighty nation. Um, verse 37, these are the first steps right here. They're walking out, they're leaving Ramses. If you remember, Ramses is a city that they built. It's an emblem, it's a monument to their slavery, uh, and it was a store city. That means it was a city that was meant for supplying the army. And they're walking out of this store city unchallenged, unhindered. What a victory. And look at who leaves. 600,000 men on foot. Besides women and children. Um, that's a number that's big enough that that a lot of scholars go, yeah, no, no. That's, that's the way it worked back then. They would exaggerate everything. There's no way there was 600,000 men. Um, Exodus doubles down on it. Over in chapter 38, as they're bringing the, the gold in for the building of the tabernacle, uh, it tells us they did a count. Um, so is that an exact number, 600,000? No, the exact number is 603,550 men, 20 years and older. 
this is not a guess. This is not an exaggeration. Um, and if you remember, God said that He would bless them. Exodus 1.7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. And the land was filled with them. So 600,000 men, if we add women and children, that probably brings about 2.5 million people, which is really cool. That's a big number. It's not, a, it's not ridiculous. Um, I, was, I was just kind of doing some math on it. If you give 30 years per generation, and, and let's say they were really fruitful and had eight kids per family, um, you can get to 9,000 real quick over those generations. Um, so 2.5 million, um, or sorry, you get to 9 million. I said that wrong. Um, you get a 9 million people if you're exponentially growing like that. This is, uh, this is just God's blessing. It's a miraculous blessing, and they've grown. And this number here um, is specific, that it's men on foot. Uh, that's a military term. We're talking about soldiers here, or at least it's giving us this hint that, that, that God's people are powerful. He's bringing them out in this kind of militaristic um, victory. And there's force here. And remember, Pharaoh was concerned that the slaves were going to rise up and, and, and threaten his, his sovereignty in Egypt. This is why. And alongside Israel came what, what's called this mixed multitude. Um, you can imagine this, this people are, are leaving and, and how many of the other slaves from other nationalities just happen to get caught up in different wars or whatnot. Yeah, I'm going too. I'm going with them, right? I mean, the, if the doors are open uh, from the prison, we're all leaving. And, and so a lot of those slaves would have jumped in. Um, I can imagine a lot of the poor in Egypt, too, would see, uh, you know what, maybe got a better shot at, at a good life with them than I do here. It hasn't worked out for them well in Egypt. Uh, I'm going to go with. Uh, and then certainly there were Egyptians who've been watching these plagues, who've been watching this God decimate Egypt and destroy all of the gods that they once worship and, and who have said, you know what? I'm in. This Yahweh, he's God. I'm going to follow him. And then, of course, they have very much livestock. Flocks of sheep and herds of goats and cattle. Um, they're being set free from Egypt and they're going out in this grand display. 600 thousand men, 2.5 million people, plus mixed multitudes, plus hordes of farm animals, and don't forget arms full of gold and jewelry. That, that same passage in, in Exodus 38 where it talks about the, the precious metals they brought into, uh, to build the temple. Um, it was like, that's where I got 9,000 from. It was about 9,000 pounds of metal, um, gold and silver and bronze. Um, they're rich. God has provided for them. Israel leaves Egypt in power and richly blessed. They don't look like slaves. They look like victors. They're coming out in fullness and blessing. And again, this tells us something about our God. He's the Lord who blesses. He's a, he is a generous God. So often Christianity is misrepresented by the world. It's even misunderstood by, by Christians. As if it's all about sacrificing. God is this miserly, angry God who calls people to, to bend to His will and to give up everything. That Christianity is this somber, joyless drudgery. It's a religion of don'ts. 
Don't sleep in on Sunday. Don't go to the best movies. Don't get drunk at the bar. Don't fool around. Don't, 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 don't. That's Christianity. And if you avoid all of these things and you don't have any fun and you don't enjoy anything, then you'll maybe go to heaven. You'll have pleased this angry, miserly God. And even as Christians, we get, we get stuck in this thinking. We forget that, that the things we're commanded not to do are the enemy that once enslaved us. They're the things that are warring against our soul. The things that would destroy us. That's true. The Bible contains a lot of commands. The Bible has a lot of things that we're not to do. Remember, it's talking to a a fallen, sinful human race with hearts bent toward evil. And and, and we become like that kid who is angry at his father because his dad said, don't put your hand in the fire. Don't eat the poison berries. Don't, Don't run out into the freeway. Stop that. How dare he? Every one of God's commands, even and especially the commands not to do certain things, every single one of God's commands are given to us for the sake of joy. The sooner we learn that, oh, the better life will be. The amount of times we see people just destroy their life because they've trusted their own heart, their own desires above what God has commanded. I don't want to obey that God. I don't want to do it that way. That's hard. I'm going to do it my way. And we watch them just nosedive their life into the ground. It's painful. The life that He calls us to, full obedience to Him, is a life of joy and fullness and blessing. He's the God who blesses. That's that's what He does. That's, That's right at the core of who He is. He loves to bless. Look at how Israel leaves Egypt with their arms full and he's taken to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a land where every man will will nap in the shade of his own fig tree. This makes me want to get a fig tree, doesn't it? That sounds good. The Bible talks about sacrifice. It talks a lot about sacrifice because there are sacrifices to be made. This will not always be easy. In fact, it will never be easy. It's a a horrible twisting and misuse of Scripture uh, to say that God always blesses His people with money and and health and and, and, and riches and wealth. I saw a post on Facebook using uh, Josh's favorite verse that God is able to do abundantly more than I could ask or imagine. The application they had to that was, I'm going to expect everything to go well for me. I'm going to expect people to treat me well. I'm going to expect everything to go my way today. That's not what that verse is about. It's not it at all. He's talking about the impossibility of knowing the love of Christ, the love of Christ that, that surpasses all knowledge, love of Christ that is higher and deeper and wider, and then he trusts in God to do immeasurably more than all he could ask or imagine to know him. That's what that means. Jesus promises there will be suffering in this life, suffering that brings us to know him better. He does call us to physical sacrifice in this life, giving up the things in our life that get between us and God. As we begin to love money and seek after that more than Christ, He might graciously take that away, painful as it may be, that we might see Him, that we might love Him more, because that money was just going to leave us 
empty and hollow and broken, and loving him will never leave us unsatisfied. And even the verses that that most clearly call for sacrifice do it in the context of joy. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Make no mistake, that's a call to death. Nobody wore a dangly cross around their neck in that day. Not happening. It'd be like wearing a little electric chair around your neck. It's not jewelry. Take up your electric chair, give up your life, and die for me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits its soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yes, to follow Jesus means denying yourself. It means take up your cross. It means give up the things that your heart longs for. Say no to many of the pleasures of this world. That's hard. Don't brush over that. That's difficult. But if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. It's impossible. There's, There's no middle ground here. And yet whoever will do that, whoever will lose their life for his sake, will find true life, will find joy. Whoever will give up trying to find satisfaction and joy in the things of Egypt and will follow Yahweh will be brought to the promised land. You can't get to the promised land if you stay in Egypt. That's just the way it works. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's rich. Do you know that, Lord? Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. It's about joy in God. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about joy in God. Listen, if your Christianity is all about what you do and don't do. If it's a drudgery and a bother, if it's a burden on you, if it's all about working hard and doing the the right things to try to impress God, if, if that's what's at the heart of it, can I make a suggestion? Maybe take up fishing on Sunday mornings. Maybe make model trains. Maybe cross stitch or gardening um, would be a better fit for you. There's no reason to be here. If your following Christ is not rooted in flowing out of joy, this eager expectation of blessing, the desire of your heart to seek to know Him and love Him above anything else, to find happiness in and from Him, then what you're doing is not Christianity, no matter what you call it. It's not what Jesus talked about. It's what the Pharisees were doing, and it's, it's what Jesus condemned more harshly than anything else. We were created to enjoy God. Don't get me wrong. Um, fishing, gardening, model trains, they won't satisfy you. They won't fill the hole in the depths of your soul. We were made to love God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, it's not always happy-go-lucky on the outside. Sacrifices are real and hard, and I don't want to brush over that. The trials can be painful and sometimes last a lifetime, and the pain in this life is no less real and deep. But we fix our eyes on Jesus, living like Him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the 
joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Trusting in him, trusting in the Lord who blesses, seeking his blessing, following him with with confidence and, and expectation. This will be good. I know this God. I trust him. I will walk through the hardness knowing that there will be joy. And let that experience of joy and that promise of joy be the fuel of your life. Let it it be the river that runs deep underneath the surface of your life that gives sustenance and refreshment, that, that produces fruit in your life. He is the Lord who conquers and He's the Lord who blesses richly. And then finally, He's the Lord who calls. This is the best news yet. He's a God who welcomes. Now having this mixed multitude following Israel out of Egypt leaves us with this question, who exactly receives the blessing? Who gets it? Who's it for? Their rescue is supposed to be celebrated and remembered in participating in the Passover feast. So who's allowed to participate? Who is it that gets to claim, I'm part of this blessing of God? And, and that's what's answered in verses 42 to 51. Moses says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought For money may eat of it after you have been circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, No uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law for native and for the stranger who sojourn among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out from the land of Egypt by their hosts. So eating the Passover is symbolic. It's this declaration that that I'm a recipient of this saving and blessing of God, that I'm one of His. I've been rescued by Yahweh. And so no foreigner, no outsider could eat of it. It didn't make sense. They weren't part of the promise. They weren't part of the rescue. They weren't part of the blessing. It's interesting, there's a It's called a chiasm. It's it's a very obvious one here, this kind of Hebrew construction. No foreigner can eat of it, but a slave that you've bought with money can eat of it, but no foreigner can eat of it. He's drawing attention to the middle one. What a cool thing. God rescuing his people as slaves out of Egypt now says the slaves of Israel, um, they were part of the blessing. They'll be part of the nation. But anyone who's just a worker, a traveling worker, someone passing through, they're not allowed to eat of the Passover meal. And verse 46 says they were to eat it in one house, and and no one was to take the flesh of the lamb out of the house. Why? Because this isn't a picnic. 
This isn't a public feast. It's not for anyone to just partake. Not everyone receives the saving and the blessing of God. The saving and blessing of God was only for Israel. Notice the distinction here. Everyone who is part of the people of Israel must partake of the Passover. And no one who is not part of Israel may partake of the Passover. There's no fuzzy line here. Some people are in, some people are out. Church, we swing back and forth on this. Some love to declare that people are out. You don't belong. Even hold up signs saying that you're going to hell. The other side, there are those who say, no, 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 God just loves everybody. Everyone is in. Now, some are in or some are out. We need to be clear on that with with tears in our eyes and pleading with people to come in. We need to be clear on that. Look exactly where the distinction lies. And this is where the good news is. Verse 48, If a stranger shall shall sojourn with you and would keep it, So a foreigner comes in, somebody who's not from Israel, someone who is from outside comes in and they want to participate in the Passover. They want to be a part of it. They can. How? They weren't there. They're not Israelites. They're not descendants of Abraham. How can they come in? Well, if you want to join in the blessings of God to Israel, you need to become part of Israel. He has to come into the covenant that God has with Israel. And to do that, he must be circumcised. Circumcision was this statement of of dedication. It's saying, I am set apart to the Lord. I'm holy to Him. I'm His and He is my God. It says in verse 48, "The, the one who is circumcised may come near and keep the Passover. That's That's a huge promise. That's earth-shattering right there. They will become natives of the land. They'll become citizens of Israel. Their their history will change. God will bring them in and make them part of the nation of Israel and the blessings that He promised Israel. And notice, it's actually the same law. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Verse 49, there is one law for the native and for the strangers among you. Whether you're born in Israel or not, if you're not circumcised, you don't get to partake. If you're circumcised, you get to come in and enjoy the blessing and the celebration. God is welcoming all to join Israel, to come into His blessing. And this was part of the promise. From from the very beginning, again, going back to to Genesis and and God's words to Abraham there, he says in in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and on him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families will be blessed through Abraham. And of course, this invitation 
made to Abraham and then built upon in Exodus is only the beginning of the fullness of the promise that comes with Jesus. In Jesus, the the lines between Jew and Gentile, between Israelite and non-Israelite, are wiped away. No longer do we become natives of Israel through circumcision. We become God's people through faith in Jesus. There's a lot of overlap here. Circumcision was never just about the body. right? Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. It was a statement of faith always been a statement of faith it was always about saying i am the lord's and he is my god but it becomes even clearer matthew 11 jesus says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden i'll give you rest take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light what an amazing promise come to me are you in slavery to the heavy burden of sin Come to me. There's freedom here. There's blessing here. You ask, where do you sit today? Are you in that position of Israel? Are you you living in that reality? Have you said, he is my God and I am his? No holding back, no turning back. This is it. This is my life. I'm banking everything on this. Or maybe... You're in the position of that mixed multitude. You've just been along for the ride. Interested in what God is doing, interested in this kind of Bible thing, some of the benefits of being part of the church and the fellowship. But kind of an outsider, looking in, kind of testing the waters. Let me warn you, there's a clear line. There's a clear line. There are some who are in and some who are not. Those who receive the salvation, the blessing of the Lord, and those who will not. And simply where you sit on Sunday morning doesn't answer that question. Even for Israelites, simply being circumcised didn't answer that question. It's about the heart. It's about saying, I am His and He is my God. Jesus doesn't just welcome. He doesn't just call. He actually commands. Acts 17, the the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus welcomes and calls and commands. Come to me. Find your rescue, find your blessing, find your joy in God through Jesus. Make that step from a a curious following at a distance to actually saying, no, He is my God and I am His. The kids with us this morning. Mom and dad can't make that decision for you. They're going to do their best to teach you, to to show you by their own lives what it means to to love God, to find joy in Him. They're going to teach you to to obey God's commands and do what's right, but, but they can't make this decision for you. You have to decide for yourself. You'll have to decide, will I follow after sin? 
just doing the, the sinful things that my heart desires and try to find my life and my, my joy in the things of this world, or will I trust God? Say no to the sinful desires of the heart and trusting that He's better. That He is the Lord who saves and the Lord who blesses. That's the call. Come, all who are thirsty.